Welcome to Hungry for Words, the podcast in which I talk to food writers while trying out one of their recipes. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. Today I'll be talking to Joe Ray, a longtime food and travel writer who co-wrote the book Sea and Smoke, Flavors from the Untamed Pacific Northwest. He wrote it with celebrated chef Blaine Wetzel. In addition to the book, Joe is a frequent contributor to Wired, and his work has appeared in the pages of the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, and on the website Chef Steps. We'll talk about the experience of moving from bustling Brooklyn to a remote Pacific Northwest island in order to work on the book. We'll also talk about the experience of working with a chef as a co-writer and the difficulties of watching a chef make a dish, particularly a complicated one, and translating it into a recipe that a home cook could use. Finally, we'll find out what Julia Child once whispered into his ear at dinner. It's going to be fun. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf, encouraging you to reclaim your kitchen, starting with one home-cooked family meal per week. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com for tips, techniques, and recipes from Wolf Cooking Tools. And by our media partner, foodista.com. Join a passionate community of food lovers at foodista.com. And by our partner, Book Larder, Seattle's community cookbook bookstore. Learn more at booklarder.com. So I'm looking through this book, and it's a beautiful book. And uh, there's a lot of pictures of Blaine in the garden and foraging and going through trying to figure out what to make. Uh, there's There are some cool things like a venison tartare, but I don't have venison of a quality, like, handy. So I ended up settling on this. So a broth of roasted madrona bark. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's you're supposed to go get some bark off this tree and then you in fact it's very specific also. So one and a quarter pounds or six hundred grams of madrona branches. Uh, and then you also have to have in addition um some madrona bark. So you can't just have the sticks, you can't just have the branches, you also apparently have to have the bark. So I'm gonna go to Volunteer Park, which is a park really close to my house and I have a map of the trees there, and it says that there are indeed at least a couple Madrona trees there. So I'm going to go out into the rain and figure out where to go get some Madrona bark. (laughs) I'm going to make what is basically, by the way, stick soup. Uh, And also part of it calls for a stock syrup, which is just sugar and water. So so I'm doing that before I go. So I'll be all ready to make my Madrona bark broth when I get back. So I actually don't know if this is a Madrona bark. I don't, I'm not really totally sure. It's red. I thought it would look more like a birch or something where it'd be more like wallpaper coming off it. So I'm not totally certain if this is the right thing. Hey, do you happen to know if this is a madrona tree? No. No, okay. Do you know what a madrona tree looks like? Yes, I do. Uh-huh. Um, 
There's supposed to be one around here. Maybe it's further up. You can tell because the bark is usually um, peeling off largely, and so the tree looks very, very smooth, and then there's some bark, and it's very orange-colored. Very orange. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm going to keep looking. Okay, good luck. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I've been walking around for a little while now. I'm getting a little, a little nervous. I'm not going to be able to find a Madrona tree. Wait, I think I found one. I'm looking at my picture, and this is it. Oh my gosh, this is it. Okay, so I found I have found a Madrona tree. This is really exciting. It is not as peely as I thought it would be. I think I'm going to have to actually take off a couple branches. Now there's some people looking at me really weird. I'm I'm like touching this tree and they're looking at me really funny. So I'm going to try to very clandestinely take this piece of bark on this tree. <laughs> I mean, I'm in Seattle. People might get really weird about this. Okay. All right. So now I have my sticks, I have my branches, and I have a little bit of bark. Okay, I'm going to head back home. Okay, so I'm back from my odyssey in the park. Uh, it took me six trees. I think this is Madrona. I'm pretty sure this is Madrona Broth uh, or Madrona Bark. So I'm pouring some water into a pan. Okay, and I'm adding the bark. So I'm going to let this kind of steep, uh, and there we go. So the Madrona bark has been simmering now. I am going to strain it. It's interesting. It's like this dark brown water. I mean, it's stick water. So uh, that is what I have made. So I'm not going to touch it yet. I'm going to wait and taste it with Joe and and see what he thinks. How did you end up working on this book with Blaine? That's a long story. That's okay. I this know, is a podcast. We have time. So, <laughs> I was living in Europe. I was looking to move back to the U.S. I knew I wanted to be out here, out in Seattle. When I was out, I have, my, I have family here. My sister's here. And her family is here. And I ended up visiting her and going up to a wedding on Lummy Island. And I met the owner at the time of the inn, whose name is Riley Starks, who's a fantastic food person. If you live here long enough, you realize all roads eventually lead to Riley. And he said, the chef from Noma is coming to be our, our, our chef. And I, I thought, that can't be right. And so, <laughs> and uh, he kept talking and it was his chef de partie, who is a, it's somewhere between a line cook and the chef himself. He runs, chef de partie will run a whole wing of the kitchen and have several cooks working under him. This was someone who was coming to work at the inn, as I understood it. A couple months later, I happened to be around, I still happened to be around at the time and was by luck, the first journalist to go see him. As I was 
as I kept coming back and kept coming back to Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, I kept every trip I came back, I would go up and check in to see what Blaine was doing up the inn. And after a couple of years of it, I said, why don't we do a book? And he said, okay, that's a very truncated version, but uh, that's how it worked out. What was the selling, like, what were the key selling points for selling this book? <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I find it really fascinating because it's very, I don't know how to say it. It's pretty niche, right? So it's, he's famous because he worked at Noma and now the inn has such extraordinary cred and he's won all these awards and all this stuff. But it's not like you're selling a hundred great casserole recipes. I mean, it, it's certainly, a, a, <laughs> you have to frame it in a certain way. Part of the benefit of having lived in Europe was... I was writing about food the whole time. I lived in some of the best food cities over there. And I was lucky enough to eat in a bunch of three-star restaurants. And the more I kept going back to meet and talk to Blaine and taste the food that they were making up there, it was very easy for me to connect the dots and see where See, it was very obvious to me to see where he was heading. There's very little up here in the way of the kind of food he's making. And it was exciting for me to see that here. So when I was pitching the book, I was relying on my intuition and saying, this person is going in this direction. And that was a big help. Mm. And luckily... Last year, he picked up Rising Star Chef at the Beards. This year, he picked up Best Chef Northwest, which times out really well with the release of the book, which is good. But I was relying a lot on intuition to be able to say, hey, like this is where I see this, this chef going. So when I was trying to sell the book, yes, you have to convince uh, a publisher that you think this it's going to play out this way. But luckily, it did. So you ended up spending a year, kind of, it, were you actually living on Lummi Island? And wow, what is that like? I moved back from Europe, but as I was doing that, I met my wife who lived in Brooklyn. And we were in Brooklyn for a couple of years, for two years. And then we moved from Brooklyn to Lummi, population 817. So that there was, you know, a bit of adapting going on. But Lummi, if you, I would imagine you've been, it's, it's, it's one of the most gorgeous, beautiful, tranquil places in the Pacific Northwest. It's a, it's an Island with almost, there's a tiny store. There's a fire department that's volunteer. There's the beach store cafe and a bunch of people and that's, and not many people. And that's about it. There's not a, there's not a ton going on except it's gorgeous there all the time. But it was a big, it was a big transition. Um, but we made friends. It took a while, but you know there was there's always there was stuff going on. And Bellingham is a five minute ferry ride away, and you know we would go and spend. Eventually, you just kind of get in the habit of spending a day a week off island to sort of keep your sanity and get stuff done. And- get stuff done and get off the rock. And it's it was nice to have Bellingham nearby, which is a super cute town. Just. Mm-hmm. On the mainland side of the island. Yeah, Bellingham is, is great. It's beautiful. Yep. So it seems like it would be a really long winter up there. I mean, it's beautiful all year round. And it's not, I mean, I think people have this very wrong idea about the Northwest, that 
it does really rain a lot during the winter. It's really hard to get away from that. But it it's not cold. Like, it doesn't snow all the time. Or, it, you know, I mean, for how far north we are, we right. actually have a pretty temperate winter. But it to me, the hardest thing for the winters is always the darkness. You know, it's dark and it's small. And you, know, you came from, you lived in Brooklyn. How hard it's not was, depressing. Was it? It's fine. <laughs> no, it's, I think... You get used to it. You adjust. There's definitely, it takes some adjusting. The home we rented faced straight toward Mount Baker. And every day you could see these showers kind of rage up and through the mountains. And it was actually kind of nice where I was or where we were. Yeah, yeah, because the whole San Juan's. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And also it really helps when you're there to walk down the street and you've got the beach and all of the San Juans are kind of laid out before you. And there's anywhere from five to God, I don't know how far you've got open, just tons of open water and the sun will go down behind them. And even if it's cloudy, there's still more light than you would think. And that just that, that openness kind of helps. Was it hard to leave after a year or were you pretty ready to go? Yeah. It's, you know, it's tiny and we're, you know, in our early 40s. And it was where I grew up in New Hampshire. um, And there's lots on Lummi that reminded me of where I'm from, which I which made it that much more enjoyable. But I also, you know, we both wanted the city. My wife and I are both writers. And it would be hard for us to do what we do and keep living up there. Yeah, I almost well, Kind of impossible. So how, how did you get into writing? Particularly food and travel writing, because right. I know that that's what you do. In the late nine, 99, I lived out here for about a year. I was down in San Francisco for a little bit. And then right before 9-11, I was going to move to France and become a journalist. I had taken a lot of French in, in high school and college. I was good at it. I did a year abroad in college and meant to stay. It was my senior year and I meant to stay for a semester and stayed for the whole year because I was really enjoying it, learning the language, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I spent my 20s kind of trying to figure that out. Um, But I started at, while I was still in the US, I started doing some freelance writing. I definitely enjoyed that and felt like I was pretty good at it. But there was just this point where I was just like, I gotta go. And so I had no plan beyond getting on a plane, finding an apartment in Paris where I really wanted to live, and I was going to be a journalist, whatever that meant, which was crazy. Uh, which <laughs> it is, is crazy. Kind of crazy. It <laughs> is kind crazy. Of crazy. It was, was a bad idea. <laughs> I had like no no how plan old were B. You when you did this, 20, late late twenties, early thirties. Mm-hmm. You've you've been to Paris, you know. Yeah, like know. it I, sucks I, you in yeah. hard. <laughs> no. I remember the day I was supposed to be graduating from college. I was walking along the Seine, and I thought, oh. I'm fine here. I didn't miss it. You know, I, I, there was my whole graduation from college was, I was walking by myself. It was lovely. I didn't miss going back to Syracuse for that at all. Yeah. I could see that Paris. Syracuse, yeah. Paris, yeah. I got to Paris. I thought I was going to be sort of a generalist, which was crazy also. Um, and then I tracked down the guy, this guy, Tom Sancton, who was the head of the time magazine bureau over there. And I was in a press association and he was part of it. And I just grabbed him and I said, please take me out for coffee and explain how to do this. Cause it was, I could see it just wasn't going to work if I didn't figure it out fast. 
he's like, well, you know, what do you, what do you like? What are you good at? And I was like, well, I did international relations in college and I was in a marketing department with a dehumidifier company. And that was awful. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, what did you really, what was the last job you had that you really enjoyed? And I had been a cook in a dozen restaurants before and I loved that. And I missed that. And he looked at me and he said, dummy, you live in Paris, go write about food. And so I ended up writing travel stories, stories that would end up in travel sections because in the U.S., because you couldn't get in your car and go, if you were reading the newspaper back in the U.S., you couldn't just get in your car and go back, you know, go and try out this food. So it would end up in travel sections. But every story I did, I made sure to have one element of it that was about food. So I'd interview, I was in Lisbon one time and I interviewed this lady who ran the oldest sardine canning company in town and she was 90 and I almost fell in love with her like right there on a bench and started talking about like Jacques Brel and she started singing a little and it was just, you know, the, the kind of the people you meet were the people I, I met and always wanted to meet were the food people. And having worked in a kitchen, I was also able to kind of see my way around a restaurant kitchen, understand how they worked. I started developing my palate, um, getting better at like understanding who who's doing what well and what's horrible. I ended up getting a friend of a friend was uh, Francois Simon, who I don't know if you've, you've probably seen Ratatouille. He, so Francois Simon was the food critic for Le Figaro and... It was Anton Ego, the food critic in Ratatouille, was based on this guy, Francois Simon, who is known as like the most feared food critic in France. And he asked me to be the English language side of his website. So I wrote my own critiques of restaurants over there on the English language side of his site. And then we'd also translate like once a week or once a month, we translate one of his critiques from French and English. Wow. It was super fun. It was, it was, it was a good scoop. Um, he was fun to work with. It was very, I'd see him like we'd go out and have coffee or lunch every couple months, but I could go and I could talk about whoever I wanted to and say whatever I wanted. And I think he just liked having, being able to talk to a larger audience. Yeah. And being able to expand beyond just sort of the beyond France and the French speaking world. I can, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That sounds pretty sweet. Things are good. And what made you decide you wanted to move back to the motherland? I was, it's funny that my blog is called Eating the Motherland because I spent a while in Sicily, but I spent a lot of time in some really, really lovely places. I was in Paris for 10 years. And within that, I spent two and a half years in Barcelona and like six or eight months in Sicily, uh, which is where my family a lot of my family lineage is from, but my base was always Paris. And there was this point where all of a sudden all of my friends moved and I realized I had one very good friend there and I would have to kind of start over in Paris again. But at the same time I was, I wanted to be closer to my family and it was just time. It just felt like it was time. So I started coming back. I came back to Seattle a couple of times to check it out, which is around when I started around when I met Blaine and I miss it. I miss it every day. Um, but I don't regret the decision.
So you spent a year up in Lummi, and uh, Blaine writes that you worked your ass off while you were up there. <laughs> is that an accurate? Is that an accurate depiction? Of- a book is a huge project, and I think, and you would know. Like people tell you before you start how much work it's going to be, and how, and you're like, ah, oh, we'll be fine. It'll be great. It'll be so much fun. And a book's a huge project. Case in point, I'm a photographer. All the all the stories I've written, I would say 80, 80% of the stories I write go out with my own photography. And it got to a point where that was about half of my income as a journalist. And I, at, at, in the beginning, I thought I would like to be the photographer for this book. And Running Press was like, no, we've got this Charity Burgraff, who's a fantastic photographer. Just, she's going to do it. And in the beginning, I was... No, this should be me. And I start. I, well, one, I saw her her work, and it was just like so, so, so much better than mine. <laughs> and I was very happy. Like that'll sell more books. That's great. Um, frankly, like that, on top of putting, spending time in the kitchen, spending time on the farm, like writing, and I was also freelancing a little bit while I was up there. Like that was plenty. It was more more than I had time to do. And I just, you know, you just make time and you do it. But Photography on top of that would have been too much. Yeah, I could see that. With the recipes, so uh, Blaine writes in his How to Use This Book that you essentially would just stand there and, and watch what they were doing and capture it. And, and I have done chef recipe, like where you tried to work, you're in the kitchen, <laughs> you try to capture the chef recipe in a way that a home cook can articulate or another person can reproduce it. And it's so much harder than anybody thinks it is. It is an insane amount of work. If someone writes a recipe and does a good job of it, you will still need to do go through it five times with red pens and markers and completely mark it up and, and refine and refine and refine because there's always stuff you forget. There's always stuff you miss. There's always questions to go back for. So when I was working in the kitchen, it took us a while to kind of get a rhythm going. It wasn't It wasn't bad. It wasn't hard, but just... This is world-class food, and I was not interested at all in kind of brushing it off and just saying like, oh, yeah, we can kind of fudge this and fudge that, and nobody's going to cook from this anyway, so who cares? I really was interested in making something that that truly reflects how they do it in the kitchen. This is how they do it to AT, just about, except we worked on scaling it back to serves four instead of serves a restaurant full of people. It was hard. I would work with a chef all day long. So sometimes we do stuff together. Sometimes I would just watch them. Um, but it would we would stick with one recipe all day long, sometimes two days long, just to make sure we got everything from beginning to end. And they're complex enough that there's a lot to kind of see and follow and boil down into something that makes sense on the page. And they, and they are complex. I mean, I have to say, so my first glance of going through the book, I'll open up the book. Now you'll get the ambient sound of the book. Um, so, but I mean, there's uh, you know, there's sous vide and then you make a sauce and then you do this broth and then you, you know, put this thing in, you know, and it, and it's high hyper local, I think is the phrase that Blaine uses. So uh, as we are sitting here talking, of course, we can smell the wafting scents of madrona bark (laughs) so on page 126 uh this recipe is called a broth of roasted madrona bark and he goes on to talk about how they are beautiful trees and they grow i think only in the pacific 
Northwest. But I thought this is not a recipe that someone, say, living in Cleveland could replicate with the exact ingredients, which is not his intent, it seems like. But there are also no substitutions like, hey, if you live in the Midwest, you could use. No, I think at that point, it's it's something that will but that will inspire somebody out there. But at the same point, at the same time, like these are restaurant recipes scaled down for serves four, serve six, and they're a lot of work. It's kind I of mean, a given, but yeah. but if you want to make them or be inspired from by them, this is exactly what they do. I think it's an interesting book because to me it felt like it opened like a wine. Like the first, yeah. like my hint, you know, when like I that. first listened, like when I first sort of got into it, I was like, oh, I had, mm. and then I got, I wrote, I literally have went back and read this book about six times. And wow. Thank you. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> so while you're here, I was fasting. But then I felt by the time I, I really had a, another, like this kind of final reading, I realized there's how to ferment things yeah. and how to make a really incredibly great tasting oil, whether it's mm. from herbs or whatever. And and there were all these small broths and all these small, you know, these small steps that were kind of building blocks yeah. to these larger more complex, uh, you know, beautiful dishes. Yeah. And um, and it, it struck me that it reminded me a little bit of poetry because poetry is what is very, the sound? What, what does the cannot... sound a blushing person makes? Like... <laughs> well, it does. Actually, they're his recipes. I just wrote yeah. them up. No, no. But I think that you were able to make them very simplified. Like I look, I mean, some of them are, whoa, that looks amazing and hard. and But yet... The actual directions were very economical in the way that you wrote them out. And that's what made me think about poetry was that it really, I mean, something that looks like it probably takes some poor guy in the kitchen, like a full, full day to make (laughs) it's, it's a page and it's, you know, very like each step is really like one paragraph and it's, it's very nicely done. Thank you. And, and don't forget, we're also giving away the keys to the castle in here in, in that the perhaps what's probably their most famous dish is the smoked salmon that's on the back cover. And if you have access to a smoker, this is exactly how they do that in that restaurant. And I would, you know, like if you've got a day on the weekend and you're, you're ambitious and want to do this, like you can do it. Oh yeah. No, I totally, yeah, yeah, I think it's exciting. And I'm, to me, I feel like it's sort of um, showing how the magician does his tricks. Very much so. Okay. Let's try this bark broth. Uh, Is this the only recipe in the book that you didn't taste? I wasn't available when I was there. Oh, got it, right. Tastes pretty good. It does taste pretty good. We shouldn't sound so surprised. I know, but I mean, it is bark. <laughs> it's I mean, got, but, it's got like a like almost like a tan, um, a tannic, mm-hmm. a tea like tannin tannicness tannicness. Help tannicness? me here. I, I, tannicness, right? That can be a word. Surely, I'm sure there's some French version of that. It's solid. It's uh, you made this from bark. I made this from Bravo, bark. Cheers. Cheers. Right? Seriously, <laughs> I would totally make this again. This is actually there's something very sort of. It's got a real umaminess to it. It's 
very fall. I think if I did this again, I might also add in like just a port, like a dried porcini because it would be nice because it's That'd so, nice. I mean, it's earthy because it is in fact earth. <laughs> it's bark. And twig. <laughs> I literally picked up some of these twigs in Volunteer Park near my house. So I was. Those all with wine? Yeah. Let me try that. Okay. <laughs> what is the wine that we're drinking? I got a Bourgogne Aligoté. It's delicious, and it pairs very nicely, it pairs with, very nicely. with our bark I'm, broth. I'm, I'm not BSing here. No, it's actually, that is nice. The thing about this is you could serve this to somebody, and they would sit there and rack their brain and try to figure out what it is. It tastes like a really nice tea. It does. I'd yeah. pay for this. Yeah, me too. You've been a food writer for a long time, having lived in Paris and other places, but your experience at Lummi Island, did that change how you approach food yourself or how you cook food or how you think about it? I'm always cooking food, whether I am at work or just kind of decompressing after a long day. Like I will just go to the kitchen and start prepping stuff, making stuff, doing something for tomorrow night. And like after I get home tonight, it's going to be nine o'clock and I'm going to go home and poach some salmon for dinner tomorrow. No, tuna. Some really good albacore tuna. And that, I, I love it. Like, that's what, It's just always what I want to be doing and talking about. It's, you can see it on your face when you talk There's about it. There's that sound of blushing again. So. <laughs> it's true, though. It's a good life. It's a good life. So I hear you have a Julia story. So I met Julia because I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a while, for two and a half years. Julia was who Julia who who had lived in Cambridge for a long time was the cousin of neighbors of mine there and they knew I was really into food and I had cooked in a bunch of restaurants and they arranged that I could come over and meet her after they had finished dinner one night so I think I met them for dessert uh, but the thing I really remember talking to her about was that she leaned over and whispered in my ear chicken thighs and I was like, <laughs> and ever since like i i always i never i've never eaten white chicken meat since then i'm exaggerating a little but it was it was really just this sort of like a way to sort of put an emphasis on a part of the bird where as a 20 something year old guy i wasn't really thinking about but she's like that's where the flavor is so we, we were just talking about food. I was working, working with a friend of mine full time. There was a, this really fantastic, there's a chef named Didi Emmons in Boston who had a restaurant at the time called Faux République. It was right near my house and I went there once and I didn't need or want another job, but I went and just said, hey, I'd like to work here a couple of days a week. If, will you let me work here? And she did. And I was just so excited about the food they were making. And being able to be a part of that and working in that kitchen. And that was a nice thing to talk to Julie about. I can't remember a time that I didn't know who she was because I was born in 1967. We lived on this small farm and we couldn't get, uh, we had the old antenna, like above the, you know, back in the day. And he had to move the antenna to get different kinds of signals. And mm -hmm. we couldn't get certain stations and he couldn't get them in certain times of the day. But oh. in the afternoon, hmm. we could always get the PBS station from Detroit. So, this is <laughs> Michigan. So, and so at, we would always watch Julia because it was 
we were got the PBS station. They played basically back to back Julia Child episodes mm-hmm. all afternoon. So my sister and I <laughs> would sit and watch Julia for hours. Uh, we were at the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association meeting at the Holiday Inn in Portland Airport a couple of weeks ago to promote the book, and we got to sign. We had to sign the book. There was a person who would hand the books to us, ready to sign. And I realized when I got the first one, I'm like, what am I going to say? Like, thank you. Like, hello. Thanks for buying my book. Please sell a bunch of copies. And what, But what came to me was like, bon appetit, which is Julia Child's sort of like sign off phrase. And I, I like it because it makes me think of her. It makes me think of my time in France. It just gives me the warm fuzzies. So if you were going to go back to Paris tomorrow, where what would be the first place that you'd go? In Paris, I would go see uh, a chef friend named Otis Liber at a restaurant called the Taxi Jaune. And what I like, there's so much to like about that place, but he's very, he has a really nice mix of traditional and it's traditional, it's traditional, but smart traditional food. Um, but it's also, it's, Right in the Marais, you know, it's a stone's throw from Beaubourg, the Musée Pompidou. Um, but it's on a side street and you really like, you only notice like some lights down from, from, from the boulevards and you can see it and you walk down and it's this cute little bistro that you really want. It's the kind of bistro everybody wants in their neighborhood. They've got a lovely wine list. Um, he's not afraid to do stuff like that horse like every once in a while he throws that on the menu i'd go see him but then like he does stuff like salmon like really like salmon with a pasta and that's not even terribly french and it's fantastic at lunch like it's great but you can just tell he's his his dad is a coffee roaster in belgium and he brings his dad's coffee in from belgium even though like nobody else in paris has it you feel like you're like le pichet is in seattle Mm. like the place you go where you want when you want to reconnect with somebody and have a really nice conversation and the food is perfect, that's probably where I'd go first in Paris. Great. Well, this has been terrific. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Thank you. My guest today has been Joe Ray, the co-author of Sea and Smoke, Flavors from the Untamed Pacific Northwest. You can follow him at his website and blog, Eating the Motherland, at joe-ray.com. You can see some photos from my Madrona broth adventure and get an idea of some of the other recipes that are found in Sea and Smoke at hungryforwords.show. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf Cooking Tools and their Reclaim the Kitchen initiative. Wolf invites you to reclaim your kitchen and your family time by preparing your own classic dishes, no matter how complex or simple, just as long as you cook. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com to learn more. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. So leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at KathleenFlynn.com. That's it for our show. See you in two weeks with a new episode of Hungry for Words. Until then, eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.